Hey, listener, this is Josh Elledge, CEO of UpMyInfluence.com. We are actively seeking guests for our daily commercial-free entrepreneurial inspiration podcast. If you know someone who is doing six to eight figures in business, send them our way. Just go to UpMyInfluence.com slash guest. Let's get on with the show. All right. Hey, everyone. Welcome to The Thoughtful Entrepreneur. I am your host, Jen Amos. And today I have with me the founder and CEO of Family Capital Strategy, David Wells. His website is familycapitalstrategy.com. Also, he's the author of the book, When Anything is Possible, Wealth and the Art of Strategic Living. David, welcome to the show. It's great to be here, Jen. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, It's a new year. So I thought I'd ask, uh, how's 2021 treating you so far, David? I don't know if it's people had a really uh, relaxing time off, but it is like January 2nd hit and it has been nonstop. Um, I feel like I've been busy, busier in the last six weeks than I have in the six months prior to that. And maybe it's yeah. everyone's just tired of COVID and it's like life's got to move on, but it has been full steam ahead since the since the turn of the year for sure. I love it. Uh, normally, I am very quick to reply to like my friends and loved ones whenever they text me. But nowadays, I find myself uh, messaging them days later. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I didn't see this. I'm absolutely I, I'm just busy. You know, like my my I'm just so busy with all these Zoom calls, and at the end of the day, I'm just exhausted. Like I don't want to look at anything screen related. And yes. here I am, like you know, it's a Friday night, and I realize I have all these unread messages. You know, but I, I agree with you. I mean, the the start of the new year, even for me, has uh, kicked off uh, very quickly. And, you know, with everything that's going on, I'm actually glad I like, I like to be productive in a time of uncertainty. So, you know, I'm just counting my blessings that I have stuff to do. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I had a friend yesterday, you know, you, you can give like a thumbs up on your iMessages. Mm-hmm. And so there's also like a question mark. And so he had sent me a, a text message a couple of days before that I hadn't responded to. And all he did was just send the question mark. So I got like a notification that it was basically the like, come on, man, like respond to this text message. And it's like, Oh, I forgot. I completely, that was like, you know, 15 messages deep at that point, but yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm totally with you. Yeah. Just, I mean, it's a lot, it's a lot, it's a lot of uh, information. I think that because of technology and because of being stuck at home, we are uh, more accessible as odd as that sounds. And, you know, thanks to, uh, thanks to technology, but again, uh, anyway, I, I digress. Let's go ahead and move forward here, David. Um, again, really happy to have you on. Uh, I talked a little bit about, I, I mentioned your company name, Family Capital uh, Strategy. And so let our listeners know for people that are hearing about your company for the first time, what do you do and who do you like to serve? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I'm very privileged to work with a pretty unique slice of, uh, of business owners in the U.S. Mm-hmm. So I typically, um, so the business, I, what we do is we work just with families that own businesses. And mm-hmm. so while that is the most dominant form of actual cor- corporate ownership, there are more family-owned companies than non-family-owned. Uh, typically, I end up working in situations where you have multiple generations at the table. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it could be, you know, it could be like a, a founder and their their children. Um, although I work with clients that are in the fourth, fifth, and sixth generation and beyond, where suddenly you end up with a really large group of, of owners. So anything, I mean, I've, my largest client has I think 90 family members. Um, so really complicated um, set of, uh, of dynamics when you get that number of people. Um, and what I end up doing is, is, is partnering with a family where typically what happens is, is that as the business grows, it produces cash. And as that cash, um, some of it obviously gets reinvested to continue growing the business. But then over time, like that actually becomes almost a separate business. So the management of that wealth. And so what I do is partner with the family to help them think about how do they build a world-class solution around that, uh, the management of 
those financial assets. Um, and so that's typically known as what's called like a family office. Um, mm -hmm. But basically it is a private, it's almost like a separate company. It's a private entity that is just helps the family manage the complexity of all its wealth. Um, and so while I don't manage assets, which is a little bit unique, um, I'm not a financial advisor, I'm not an asset manager, I'm purely a strategist to help the family think about what it is they're trying to build with their wealth. And then what does the team look like? What systems do they use? What processes need to be in place? Um, who are they going to partner with? Because they'll have a lot of different specialized vendors for that. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm, I'm kind of a, you know, an, an architect that helps them then build that entity so that they, the family can maximize what it's trying to do with its wealth. Yeah. Um, wow. I think that's a, definitely a fine um, a niche to focus on. There's definitely a lot of uh, family-owned businesses uh, in America that have uh, generations um, that have been working in it for a long time. There's some I could think of, but one might be really political if I say out loud. Um, but anyway, uh, you know, I think about like the McCanns with. Um, uh, oh my gosh, I'm totally going to butcher like the name right now. I need the editors to clean this up. Um, but anyway, I'm not going to mention that. We're going to clean that out. Um, so tell me, tell me about. Um, Tell me a little bit about how do you juggle, you know, these family dynamics, because you mentioned one of the, you know, one family you worked with, there was like 90 family members involved. Like, I mean, I can only imagine how sensitive it is to, you know, kind of walk that, you know, with, with the different generations of families involved with the business. Like how do, how do you navigate that? Yeah, I think it, it is. And it's a, um, What's really interesting is, is that I think we all see in stories in the newspaper of like when the dysfunction goes awry and there's an assumption that like that's somehow the normal case, the normal state of affairs for families. Like mm -hmm. if you've seen Succession on HBO, uh, mm -hmm. which is the story of a family business where everyone is high, highly dysfunctional. Mm -hmm. um, and generally what I find is, is that like family businesses are just normal families. Um, you know, they have, we all have the normal dysfunction in our family systems. Sometimes it gets toxic and the stakes are a little bit higher, but really I find that a lot of it comes down to um, what I try to do is, is to show trade-offs so that when you've got um, multiple generations at the table, each with a different opinion about a, a, a point of view or a direction is basically to, to lay out the case of, okay, if you go down this path, this is what that means when you play this for 10, 15, 20 years. If you go down this path, this is what it means. Mm -hmm. So it's trying to kind of um, desensitize or take the emotional loading out of the conversation so that you can have a rational conversation around, around trade-offs so that you go eyes wide open. I, I find a lot of times um, not always, but a lot of times when it gets really loaded emotionally, it's because of implicit assumptions or implicit decisions that the family has made before. Mm -hmm. So if you could, it's kind of that old saying like spot sunlight is the best disinfectant. Like mm -hmm. if you could kind of bring things out in the light and then lay it out, then you could hopefully have a, have a, a more objective conversation. Not always the case. And sometimes it's, you have to build a framework to get to the conversation that you want to have. Um, yeah. But generally, you know, if you, if you lay out the breadcrumbs, the family can follow right along with that. Yeah. And I imagine uh, having someone such as yourself, David, you can uh, be that, um, you know, third party unbiased person that they can um, scapegoat, if anything, like if there is any sense of thing, it's like, oh, well, David said that let's take it to David, as opposed to like, you know, the generations um, uh, being like arguing amongst it. it's like they can come to you for that direction and say, hey, like, let's let's just let's look at the numbers. Let's look at the facts. Like this is how um, this can benefit all of you. You know, just being that middle person, I think, is very helpful that I'm sure families really appreciate just like how, you know, you have an attorney um, review um, a will after, you know, a family member passes away, like rather than, you know, the siblings uh, fighting over whatever is left, like you have a third party person like an attorney to be able to mediate that. And so it sounds like you're, you sort of do that uh, with uh, generational wealth. Also, what it sounds like with these families. Exactly the same. Yeah, it's, mm -hmm. it's 
having a third party um, who can who can hear things that maybe don't get expressed otherwise, and then has the freedom to say things that maybe can't be expressed otherwise, simply because there's no skin, you know, there's no skin in the game of like, I'm not going to be at Thanksgiving and Christmas for the next 25 years. Like (laughs) I I can be as objective as possible. And generally like my, I I kind of view my role is to be a, um, to be a, a um, thoughtful truth teller so that, that the family hears what they need to hear. And then to, to be as, uh, in pursuit of what's best for the family overall, you know, it's, yeah. it, so it's, I don't necessarily, I, I try not to get wed to one path of saying like, well, this is the path that it has to be done because it ultimately has to be informed by what's important to the client. Like, what do they want to accomplish? What are they trying to do? Um, but I want to make sure that they go into that really eyes wide open um, so that they know that, okay, it, this, this may be suboptimal. Um, and are they, are you okay with that or not? I think that's an interesting dynamic that I think a lot of us as like, as a business owner myself and, and from my even professional background, like sometimes you make choices that are not optimal because they provide other benefits, mm-hmm. um, whether that's, you know, so it may not be the most profitable decision or it may be the less, the least efficient decision, but it allows greater value to be added in a different way. And yeah. so again, it's just, are you aware of what you're doing or not? Um, I think so many times, like we, we're all probably guilty of um, some of the best things that we do in life. It's not because we actually planned it. It's just because we like backed into it or we kind of lucked into it, mm-hmm. um, which is great, but it's like, let's just make, you know, but it's, um, you know, luck is not a scalable success strategy, right? Like if it's, right. if it just happened once, like you can't guarantee that it's going to happen again. So better to double click in and figure out what actually happened um, in that circumstance. Yeah. Uh, David, I imagine that, um, you know, when you working with family owned businesses, you must have some um, clientele that you've had for a very long time um, and seen maybe even their own growth uh, within the family and, you know, the growth of the business. Do you have any, um, you know, favorite clients that you have in mind that you want to share with us and and how that, how that relationship is like working with them? Yeah. So I, 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 First off, let me just say, like, I have like signed non-disclosure agreements with all my clients, so like, I can't. I can't yeah, you don't have to name drop. That's okay. Yeah, <laughs> um, um, but I think what's really, really cool um, and 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 a real privilege is exactly that, which is to to watch a family um, journey through things over time. Mm-hmm. Um, especially what's you know, and probably not surprising because like I have three kids, and I think every parent worries about how their kids grow up. Um, and, and I think there's such a common dynamic of, of all families that are, are trying to figure out how to do something for a long period of time, um, of, of really spotlighting and saying, okay, for our, our, it's called next gens, but you know, that next generation that's coming into the family, you know, yeah. how do we, how do we get them educated and launched and help them find their place? Um, and what's really cool to see is, is even as, um, as those folks kind of come into the to the family system, they find their place, they find their voice, they develop some real expertise incredibly neat to watch um, how the the human capital of the, fa- like the, the, the actual people of the family um, uh, build and grow over time. And I think that's probably, honestly, I think what, one of the things that I love about the work that I do is, is that, you know, most families typically like start to dissolve after three generations. Like mm-hmm. you probably spend time with your, you know, your parents. And if you have living grandparents, that's great. But then, you know, it's odds are that, um, you know, as, the, as your grandparents pass away, you know, just that cousin generation, naturally, like you end up dispersed with different values and interests, and you may live all over the country and world. Yeah. And so to have, um, a family business or a pool of family wealth that serves as kind of that, it gives the family a reason to stay together. 
if the family can then almost create like a, a social system where the family wants to be part of something because they get it, get, they get to interact with these really neat people. That's really cool to watch um, when the family does that really well, because it's kind of this, it is, um, it can be a dynamic of mint of mentorship, of, of friendship, of, of, um, camaraderie that is, you know, in a, in a modern world that is really fragmented and siloed. Um, I think we can all end up isolated and, and maybe that's what we've all learned in COVID is that like, when we're all at home, it can be very isolating. And so yeah. these families that figure out how to stay together for 80, a hundred, 150 years or more, what a neat counterbalance to those, some of those forces that we see in the modern world. Yeah, I think uh, I find those kind of families who have uh, sustained a business for generations. I think it's really admirable. Um, and I, I like how you pointed out that after the uh, a lot of times these businesses only last for three generations. Have you worked with businesses where the next kin was like, I don't want to do this business. You know, I don't want to carry on this legacy. And uh, what was it? Maybe what was your approach to, um, I guess, make that transition for them to, you know, to move out of the business or 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 that sort? Yeah, it's it's really interesting, and I'm um, th- there's a common saying in the industry, and actually it's global, which is the it's called shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations. Mm. So it's the idea that the first generation makes it, the second generation preserves it, and then the third generation loses it. Um, <laughs> and there's a whole bunch of reasons why that happens. Mm-hmm. Um, what I find really interesting is is that a lot of times, um, what well, two two things often happen. One is is that the business itself may reach a point where it actually no longer makes sense to be owned by the family. So it either the industry changes, the business grows, and um, the family is no longer the rightful owner to it. And Mm -hmm. so there are a lot of families that I think um, would benefit by looking at the older families from from Europe, or even some of the, you know, the Southeastern Asian families that have been around for for an exceptionally long period of time that have recognized that um, if you can think about your business as a portfolio and say, okay, well, there's a time to own an asset and there's a time to sell an asset, but you can still be in business together, even if the pieces change. Mm. And I think that's what you're seeing now is, is families that are, are coming to that realization. So that's maybe like the, the, the first set of families that decide to sell a business at a generational transition. Sometimes it's, it's really for more business specific reasons. Mm-hmm. Exactly though. There are, there are a cohort of families where they, where they reach a point where, the, um, the family doesn't want to be in business together. Mm-hmm. And so they begin to kind of go their separate ways. And that's a, that's a very sensitive thing. Um, I, because of my work, I end up typically engaged with families that are wrestling with the how we stay together question. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I certainly spend, spend time with and have gotten to know a number of families that have made the choice to, to go separate ways. And I think that is that if done thoughtfully can be a, um, can be a, a successful outcome. Like that can be a good choice, even if it feels like failure. Yeah. Um, what what I think is what becomes really tragic is 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 when you do see the families that, in the course of coming to that decision, ultimately say like the only way for us to negotiate this path forward is is to litigate it out and to get mm-hmm. the lawyers and courts involved. And then what happens is is that you have people who are paid by the hour um, negotiating a conflict. And so mm-hmm. generally, like just common sense would say like. Uh, the bigger the conflict is, uh, the more hours there are available, and uh, and the more likely there's uh, there's you know good fees to be had. And, and obviously that's right. a you know vast hyperbole about the state of lawyers. Mm-hmm. But what it does mean is that the family stops talking to each other about its problems. They talk through their lawyers. Yeah. And generally, when that's done, it's really hard for the family to be a family afterwards. Right. Um, I think right. sometimes it's actually you know if if you can say like we've reached a point where we have different goals and and our vision of the future uh, looks different but yeah. we still want to maintain some of those family bonds. 
a thoughtful separation can be a great way to make to main, to make sure those relationships continue, um, even if they look different. Um, mm-hmm. As opposed to like, let's scorch the earth. We'll never see each other again. Um, you know, if that's like the the you know the deathbed regret of like, oh, I wish we had patched this up. That's I think the worst case outcome. Um, there's yeah. a middle case, um, but it's you know it's it's like a um, it's like a well handled divorce, right? There there are mm-hmm. some couples that figure out how to how to do that in a way where they still are able to co-parent together and are friendly, and then yeah. there are others where it is just like you know. Uh, they could live halfway across the country or the world and that still wouldn't be far enough away. Um, and, and that's, I think ultimately ends up being a really tough place for the family and for the individuals. Yeah, um, absolutely. Well, thank you for indulging me in that question. Yeah. I know that's not um, something you primarily want to focus on um, or work on, even though it's available, you can do it. You like to focus more on keeping that family bond. And so what is one maybe key advice, maybe a mantra that you sort of live with and stand by to maintain the family bond, um, not just like, especially beyond that third generation. Yeah. So I, so my mantra has three parts, but it's the idea that really to, to be successful for a long time horizon, you're balancing three things at the same time. Mm -hmm. So you're balancing what's good for the individual. You're balancing what's good for the family, capital F, and then you're balancing what's possible with the assets that are available. And so the families that I think that are most successful, it is a place where each individual feels like they've got a, they have the ability to live their own life um, yeah. and to accomplish what's important to them, to, to have their dreams and see their realization. There's a, there is a degree of stickiness. There's a collective mentality where they say, yes, we want to do this together. And then they marry that with a financial approach to their, to their business affairs that the business, or if it's, if they've sold the business and it's just a big investment fund, so to speak, that, that it's um, the, the pursuit of the family goals don't ultimately deplete the assets. Mm-hmm. And so if you can kind of balance that stool in space, like then you've got a really great foundation for persisting for a long period of time. If any one of those ends up you know, getting more priority, like if it's too much focus on the individual, then the family falls apart. If mm-hmm. the family is too important, then individuals are going to begin to feel like they're in a straitjacket and that they're forced right. into this thing. And that I heard somebody joke recently that they only that only works until about the age of forty, and then people have had enough. And it's something about middle age, and they're like, you know what, I'm I, I can't handle the constraints of being part of this system. Yeah. Um, and so, and same thing with if 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 you spend the wealth too quickly, like it goes away. Right. Um, and so that's the that's the complex balancing act. But if you can keep individual family and the the wealth in alignment. It's a, it, that is a, you've, you laid out a lot of, of rails or track that, that the train can run on um, for a long, long time frame into the future. Yeah, I really like that uh, formula in a sense, you know, uh, making sure that the individual, the, the individual family member still feels like they can, you know, be their own person. And then there's also that collectivist goal amongst the family and then maintaining the assets as sort of the, the thing that we, they all do together with as an individual and as a family. Um, I really like that. I never uh, heard um, anyone describe it that way, but that's a really good thing to keep in mind and something I'll probably write down <laughs> for myself. Like the stool of success is, you know, being an individual, ha- having your individual having your individuality, um, you know, having the same, like sharing collective, collective goals with your family, and then also the money uh, or the assets, maintaining that uh, the assets together as a family. Um, no, very astounding. Uh, David, I know that you have a book. I mentioned this at the beginning, When Anything is Possible, Wealth and the Art of Strategic Living. Let us know what that book is about. Yeah. So uh, kind of a natural segue. So mm-hmm. the book is really about the first leg of that stool, which mm-hmm. is the, in- which is about the individual. 
And my, my background, I've, I've been in and around financial services for 15 years, mm-hmm. um, ran a hedge fund for a while, been a portfolio manager and been privileged to work with, with wealthy families in a lot of different contexts. Um, there's a lot of wonderful resources about the family. Um, mm-hmm. There's a lot of wonderful resources about the wealth management piece of it. How do you do the investments so you, so you are successful? What I found was that, is that it's really hard to think thoughtfully at the individual, at the household level. What is it that you're trying to accomplish? Mm-hmm. Um, and especially with, you know, as the wealth grows, which is kind of a natural consequence of being success. Um, what's really sad is, is that um, there's a lot of wonderful surveys that would, would suggest that most people who have been wildly successful are not really happy with, with that state of affairs. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a survey that talks about how the, the, that the majority of people who are kind of in the ultra high net worth, so think, you know, at least $25 million in net worth or, or above, they don't feel financially secure. Um, there's another data set that says that 80% of people who have a trust fund don't view it as a positive presence in their life. Mm. Um, 50% of business owners, after they sell their business in the 18 months after that, say that they regret the decision. Wow. So it's this very odd state of affairs, right? Which is like, these are people um, that you would say like, oh, these should be the happiest people on earth that, they, that they've attained this financial success. But when you ask them, they, they, they don't feel like that's the case. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the book is really a, about how, how do you, um, as, as your wealth grows, and, and it's not really, I mean, it's, and I think this is true regardless of if you've got $1,000 in the bank or $100 million or a billion dollars in the bank, it's the same set of questions that are applicable. But it's really comes down to th- these three questions of, well, what do you have? And that includes your financial resources, but it also includes things like the relationships that, that you have, um, the social causes you care about, the education and, and, and uh, skills that you've developed, the mm-hmm. legacy that you've inherited, um, and the values from, from the past, and, um, and even like your faith practice that, that mm-hmm. inform that. Those are all assets. Um, and mm-hmm. we, we tend to focus on the, the financial balance sheet. We maybe don't give as much of, um, it's harder to quantify some of those other things, so they kind of fade into the background. So Question one is like, what, who, what do I have? Um, which I call, which I call like your wealth structure. What are all the pieces? Mm-hmm. The second is what I call wealth identity. And it's really, okay, how do you answer the question? Who am I and who do I want to be? And specifically with, with regards to your wealth um, mm-hmm. and recognizing that like that question of who am I, like that's, that is serious, thoughtful matter. But what we don't realize is, is that there are a lot of things that, that inform how we think about ourselves in relationship to our wealth. Mm-hmm. And that could be where you grew up in the country. Um, that could be um, the you know your family of origin and ha- you know whether it, it was been wildly successful or if it was successful and then lost it all. There are messages that are coming into to um, your upbringing and psyche about wealth that most of the time we never really think about. It's just kind of like it's like the water that uh, a goldfish swims in. The goldfish is not really aware of that water, um, mm-hmm. but it's dramatically affects the the life that it's living. So mm-hmm. wealth identity. And then strat- wealth strategy, which is the, okay, well, what do I do next? Like if I, if I know what I have and I know what, who I am and, where, and who I want to be, well, then you can begin to answer the question of like, well, what do I do next? Mm-hmm. And that's where a lot of times the focus runs to like investments or like managing taxes um, actually, but the book spends a lot of time talking about the really important things of, okay, how do you set a standard of living thoughtfully? How do you figure out how much you're going to spend? Um, how do you figure out how much you're going to give to future generations? And then how do you fill out, figure out this philanthropic question of what's my responsibility to the community around me? Um, and how do I do that really thoughtfully so that I'm actually helping people and not hurting them through my philanthropic dollar? Um, mm-hmm. So the book is designed to be really pragmatic. Um, it's, it's written so that regardless of your background, you can read it, but it's designed to, to give you a process to think through those steps so that at the end of the book, your wealth is something that hopefully goes from being like either just dollars in the bank or overwhelming to like, 
a tool that you can deploy to accomplish what's most important to you. Yeah, I love that. I love that final note. It's like ultimately you're looking at your wealth as a tool uh, to support like who you want to, who do you want to be, and what do you want to do next, right? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I, and I think that's the, you know what the world needs now, right? Is people who are um, dramatically aware of what their of what their own capabilities are, and then how they can make a difference in their community, right? Yeah, like yeah. We, this year, we have seen some horrible suffering um, for all for all sorts of reasons. And if we can um, create a place where um, each person is is living a fulfilled life and then is using that to impact their family uh, and and their community around there, I'm pretty sure that makes a world that's going to be a lot better to live in in 20 and 30 and 40 years. Um, and uh, and it will address a lot of the, not all of, but a lot of the issues that I think that we've seen an acute spotlight put on uh, in the last 12 to 15 months. Yeah, absolutely. I think just that uh, sense of purpose and fulfillment um, can solve a lot of problems. I absolutely agree with you on that. Um, David, it's been such a pleasure having you here on The Thoughtful Entrepreneur. Any final thoughts before we go? No, no, this has been great, Jen. I really appreciate the time. Um, if folks are interested, uh, you can you can visit my website, familycapitalstrategy.com. And uh, yeah, otherwise, this has been a great conversation. Thanks for the time. Yeah, absolutely. I enjoy what I do. <laughs> and uh, again, to our listeners, this is David Wells, who is the founder and CEO of Family Capital Strategy. You can learn more about him and his company at familycapitalstrategy.com. Thank you all so much for joining us. And we'll chat with you in the next episode. Tune in next time. Thanks for listening to the Thoughtful Entrepreneur Show. If you are a thoughtful business owner or professional who would like to be on this daily program, please visit upmyinfluence.com slash guest. Now, if you've got something out of this interview, would you share this episode on social media? Just do a quick screenshot with your phone and text it to a friend or post it on the socials. Now, if you do that, tag us with the hashtag upmyinfluence. Each month, We scour Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. We pick one winner from each platform, and you get crowned king or queen of that social media. Now, what do you win? Well, we're going to promote you and your business to over 120,000 social media fans totally free. Now, can you also hook us up? Now, in your podcast player right now, please give us a thumbs up or a rating and review. We promise to read it all and take action. We believe that every person has a message that can positively impact the world. Your feedback helps us fulfill that mission. And while you're at it, hit that subscribe button. You know why? Tomorrow, that's right, seven days a week, you are going to be inspired and motivated to succeed. 15 minutes a day. Now, my name's Josh Elledge. Let's connect on the socials. You'll find all the stuff we're doing at upmyinfluence.com. Now, thanks for listening, and thank you for being a part of the Thoughtful Entrepreneur Movement. Mm-hmm.